Our reading today is from the book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 2. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and in the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, 
the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. This is God's word. Thanks very much, Kathy. Do keep that open. And let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the journey that we've been on so far through the book of Esther, through the comfort you've given us from seeing the hidden hand of God at work. And Father, as we think about this great deliverance this morning, and as it points forward to an even greater deliverance in Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that these truths would be of great joy and comfort to our own hearts once again that we might live in light of them for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you were to use one word to describe God's relationship with his people, what would it be? There's no doubt a number of valid answers to that question. God is described as our Father. He's described as our Lord, as our Creator, as as our Shepherd, as our Judge. And God's also described as our deliverer. Have a look at Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock. We've sang about this already this morning. My fortress and my deliverer. You see, throughout the Bible, we meet a God who time and time again delivers his people from trouble. All the way back in Exodus, we see God deliver his people from oppression and slavery in Egypt in order to bring them to himself. We see the same pattern throughout the book of Judges. When God's people turn away from him, he allows the other nations to come in and oppress them. And they cry out to God for help. And he sends them a judge or a deliverer to save his people from trouble. And by the time we get to Esther, it's a case of same old, same old. Once again, God's people are in trouble. Once again, God's enemies are seeking to destroy them. And once again, God is kind enough to deliver. This time, though, not with mighty acts of judgment like it was in Egypt, with the ten plagues and this this great pillar of cloud and fire and the parting of the Red Sea, but with a hidden hand. You see, God is quietly at work in this book, behind the scenes, in the smallest details, turning the tide of events in order to preserve his people for his glory. We saw it in chapter 1 and 2 with the story of two queens, the fall of Queen Vashti and the rise of Queen Esther. We saw it in chapter 3 and 4 with two plots, the plot to assassinate Xerxes and the plot to annihilate God's people. And then we saw it again last week in chapter 5 through to 7 with the story of two banquets, Two banquets that led to the downfall of Haman and to the salvation of Mordecai. But as we arrive in chapter 8 this morning, it becomes clear that God's deliverance of his people is not yet complete. Let's have a look at verse 3 of chapter 8. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him 
to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he devised against the Jews. You see, Haman may be dead, but his edict is very much alive. And not even the king of Persia has the authority to change it. That's the way things worked. Anything that went out with the signature of the king, with, with his seal, with his royal stamp of approval, cannot be changed. And therefore, the first edict sent out by Haman, authorizing the annihilation of God's people, still stands. It's a little bit like a Bond movie, when the villain's dead, but the bomb's still ticking. The villain, Haman, is dead. But the bomb's still ticking, the edict still stands, the date still remains in the diary. And so on the 13th of the 12th, 474 BC, which was now nine months away for these people, they would have been wiped out on one day by their enemies. And that's why Esther once again falls at the feet of the king and she pleads with him to do something. In fact, it's only over these last few chapters that God's deliverance is complete. That Esther's weeping turns to joy. That Esther's fasting turns to feasting. And as we work our way through these chapters, we will find two feasts. Two feasts that mark two significant moments in God's deliverance of his people. Firstly, we have a deliverance that is promised Have a look at verse 5 and 6. Here's the plea of Esther. If it pleases the king, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? In reply, Xerxes reminds Esther of all that he's done. Haman is already out of the picture and he's given Haman's estate to Esther. But he also makes it clear that he cannot change that first edict. Look at the end of verse 8. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can be revoked. But what he does do is give authority to Esther and to Mordecai to write a new edict. And so at once in verse 9, the the royal secretaries are summoned. The edict is written. It's translated into all the different languages of the 127 provinces before being sent out first class by royal mail. And then in verse 11, we're given the summary of the edict that went out that day. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble And to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. You see, in many ways, This chapter mirrors and reverses what we've read already in chapter 3. We have the summoning of secretaries. We have the sealing of rings. We have the sending out of horses. But of course, there's one big difference between the first edict that went out and the second, which is this. Haman's edict gave authority to God's enemies to wipe out the Jews for no reason. 
Mordecai's edict gave authority to the Jews to defend themselves from those attacks. What we have here isn't a a license for indiscriminate killing, but a royal permission to protect themselves on that day. On the 13th of the 12th, 474 BC, to stand against all those who sought to destroy them. And so the royal couriers are sent out in verse 14, and the inevitable celebrations begin in verse 15. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And so this first feast is a, is a celebration of God's promised deliverance. You see, here we find a people who were living under a law that sentenced them to death. That was the first edict. But now we have a new law. The second edict, a proclamation that offers life. And that's the gospel, isn't it? This world is living under the sentence of death. But then Jesus came to offer life. He came to bring a new law, the law of the spirit of life that sets us free from the law of sin and death. We have a new law in Jesus Christ. I remember as a 13-year-old boy hiding under my duvet on Christmas Eve night. My gran had been stopping with us at Christmas and she died while she was with us at our house on Christmas Eve morning. It's the first time that I'd seen a dead body, so grey, lifeless. I remember looking down at my gran, and even as a even as a 13-year-old boy, it wasn't hard to join the dots. What I was doing then, one day someone would do to me. Someone would look down on my body. What did that all mean? And I remember asking those questions, a 13-year-old boy, when every other 13-year-old no doubt went to bed Christmas Eve night, excited in anticipation of the next day. And for the first time in my life, I went to bed scared, not knowing what the future held, not knowing what lay beyond death. And you know what? In many ways, I carried around that fear with me until the age of 22 and the day that I trusted in Jesus Christ. Because in that moment when God opened my eyes to the wonder of the gospel and his resurrection from the dead, the fear of death was just lifted. It was the most most beautiful experience in my life. And so it was for God's people in Persia. They were living under the sentence of death, the first edict. But then they heard the promise of life, the second edict. And as a result, in verse 16 and 17, they're filled with joy and gladness. And they gather together to feast and to celebrate God's goodness to them. And just in case you missed it at the end of verse 17 on the first reading, this is what we read. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, whether these were genuine conversions or or political moves, we don't know. We don't know the heart. Only the Lord knows the heart. But the point is this. Other nations were beginning to align themselves with God and his people rather than standing against them. And so our first feast 
is a celebration of God's promised deliverance. Deliverance is coming. A new law has arrived. And then our second feast is a celebration of deliverance accomplished. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. It's now nine months since the second edict was sent out and the day has arrived. The 13th day. It's been in the calendar for a long time now. The 13th day of the 12th month, 474 BC. And what we read there in verse 1 really is a summary of what then happens over these next few days. You can imagine the headline, can't you, in the Persian post? The tables are turned. And then in smaller print below, a fuller account of how D-Day became V-Day. Of how God delivered his people and gave them victory over their enemies. Now you see, whenever we come across a a passage like this in the Bible that deals with death on such a, a large scale, it can be pretty hard to read. But as we work through it together now, what we need to understand is that this news, these events are presented as good news. This is a story of deliverance for God's people from those who are seeking to destroy them. Have a look at verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed and then enlisted the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So in the citadel of Susa, which is the the seat of government, if you like, for the Persian Empire, 500 of God's enemies are put to the sword. And as we just read, those numbers include the ten sons of Haman. It seems like his hatred and prejudice and hostility towards God's people has been passed down to them as well. And so they too come under the judgments of God. But did you notice that little phrase there at the end of verse 10? It, it comes up three times in this chapter. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Why? Because this is not about personal gain. This, in fact, isn't about revenge for the Jews at all. This is about God getting justice. What we have here is, in fact, a shadow of what will be on that final day when God's justice is full and final. For those of you who were with us for the series in Revelation over a year ago now, you may remember that the the return of our Lord Jesus, that final day when Christ comes back, is pictured as a battle the words there in Revelation chapter 19 this is what will be I saw heaven standing open this vision John has heaven is opened up before him and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true it is a picture of the Lord Jesus our returning king coming back from heaven his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, those who stand against God will not stand for long. And sadly, in the days of Esther, there were many, we read, who were standing against God. Many who failed to take heed of this second edict. You see, they had nine months to listen. They had nine months to repent. They had nine months to align themselves with God rather than to stand against him. But they didn't listen. And they didn't repent. And so they too came under the judgment of God. And so it is in our day. There's people all around us who continue to stand against the one true God. Members of our own family and our friends who are failing to listen and to respond to the ultimate edict. The promise of life that we find in the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came into this world to bear our sin. That we might know life and life in all its fullness. And if people continue to stand against God and refuse that offer of life, then they too will come under his judgment. You see, in the Bible, deliverance and judgment go hand in hand. In fact, there is no deliverance without judgment. We see that at the cross. The Lord Jesus was judged at the cross in order that we might be delivered. And as it was in Esther's day, so it will be On that final day, only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Only those who align themselves with the Lord Jesus will be saved. Well, as we come back to the story, the the camera pans out. The focus was on the citadel of Susa. Now the, the cameras pan out, look in verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Deliverance is accomplished, and so the celebrations begin. In fact, this day was so significant for the, for the Jews that they celebrated it annually. Have a look at verse 20 where this feast is, is formalized by Mordecai. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. This was a day to celebrate and to look back and to remember for the Jews. And it was a day also to proclaim. Imagine being a a few decades on from what happened here. The Jewish family gathered together around the table and they're feasting on the 14th of the month. And a little boy turns to his father and says, Daddy, 
Why are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? And the father, with a smile on his face, turns back to his little boy and says, Well, son, we're celebrating the day when God delivered his people from their enemies. And so the story of Esther was retold. It's one of the reasons why our children should be maybe with us more in the main gatherings here. So when we share the Lord's Supper together, when we, when we come together to remember the greater deliverance, the deliverance of Jesus Christ and all that he did on the cross, when we get home for lunch, our boy or our girl might turn to us and say, Daddy, why did you eat the bread and drink the wine? I can turn to my lad, Caleb, I can turn to my girl, Mia, and say, here's why. Because we remember the great deliverance of Jesus Christ. And with a smile on my face, I can open up the word of God and read the story of what happened at the cross. His body given for you. His blood spilt for you in order that we might know a full and final deliverance. You see, the Lord's Supper is a celebration, but it's not only that. It is also a proclamation of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Well, as we begin to draw things to a close, just flick forward, if you would, to verse 26, where we learn about the name that was given to this feast that the Jews celebrated annually. Therefore, these days were called Purim, for the word Pur, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. Do you remember the word Pur that came up back in chapter 3? It's the Babylonian word for dice. When Haman had written that first edict, he, he cast the lots. He rolled the dice to set the date. And here that word is chosen as a reminder of this annual ceremony and feast that they held. Why? As a lasting reminder to them that even when life is oh so messy, even when life is painful, even when life feels like everything is out of control, God, in fact, is in control of every single detail. He overrules in all things for the deliverance of his people, even the roll of a dice. It's what we read in Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Feels like the right place, does it not, to finish this great story with the sovereignty of God. We've seen his hidden hand at work throughout this book. But as you can see, the story doesn't end there, right, in chapter 9. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Now, after all the, the feasting and celebration, that feels like a pretty strange way to end this story with the taxes being imposed upon the people of Persia. But actually, it's incredibly clever because here's the reality. Not a lot has actually changed. You see, when we began this book, we found God's people in exile living under Persian rule. And as this book finishes, we find God's people still in exile, still living under Persian rule and subject to its taxes. Point being that God's people then were still awaiting a greater fulfillment. And you know what? In some senses, so are we. 
we too have been delivered from God's judgment against sin. Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now, now, right now, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, right now, no guilt, no condemnation for those who are found in him. Yet, we still await the day when the Lord Jesus returns from heaven, Revelation chapter 9, on his white horse to deliver us from this sin-broken world once for all, to take us out of this mess and to carry us safely into the new creation, where for all eternity we will celebrate around the banquet table of the king. Any feast that you find in the Bible is just sending us forward to that great and full and final feast that will be around the table in heaven for all those that trust in the Lord Jesus. Why don't you take a moment now, just in the quietness of your own hearts, to consider that day, that final day that will be a day of both judgment and deliverance. Take a moment to ponder that, and then we're going to sing together as we celebrate.